Once the domain of only anesthesiologists, rapid sequence intubation is now a skill practiced by emergency room physicians. What are the pitfalls and the advances for your patients requiring intubation? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM. I'm your host, Dr. Shira Johnson, and joining us today to discuss rapid sequence intubation is Dr. Calvin Brown III from Brigham and Women's Hospital, Department of Emergency Medicine in Boston. Dr. Brown is an instructor in medicine at Harvard Medical School and an attending physician at Brigham. He's on the National Faculty for Difficult Airway Course for Emergency Physicians. Dr. Brown, welcome to ReachMD. Thanks for having me. So first of all, for our listeners, remind them what is rapid sequence intubation and what type of patients need it outside of the OR? Well, rapid sequence intubation is an intubation technique used by emergency physicians for patients that need emergency airway management. And what it is technically is the use of a rapidly acting potent sedative induction agent to induce a sleep state, followed immediately by a rapidly acting neuromuscular blocker after a period of preoxygenation. And this is to induce the best intubating conditions for the physician. So it's used specifically for endotracheal intubation. Why did you as an ED physician have an interest in rapid sequence? Well, The defining skill, I think, for emergency physicians is to be able to effectively perform emergency airway management, and RSI is really the cornerstone of that skill set. And so you can't really be a safe practicing emergency physician without having an intimate knowledge of A, emergency airway management, and RSI is the cornerstone of that skill set. So some of our listeners today may have heard it before, may have used it, or may not be familiar with it. Take us through a high-level overview like you did in the beginning of some of the steps. Sure. Well, you can think of rapid sequence intubation as really a series of seven steps, which we call the seven P's of RSI. And it starts with, number one, a period of preparation, where you sort of gather all of your equipment. The second step is a period of preoxygenation, where you try to get the patient's starting O2 saturation as high as possible. Third is a period of pretreatment, in which you give either fentanyl or lidocaine for certain medical conditions that the patient's presenting with, either asthma or presumed elevated intracranial pressure or cardiovascular emergencies. Fourth is the time at which you give your induction agent and your paralytic. That's the fourth P. The fifth P includes positioning, where you place the patient's head in the proper position for laryngoscopy. And sixth would be the placement of the endotracheal tube. And then finally would be post-intubation management, where you set up ongoing sedation, and you confirm endotracheal tube placement with chest x-ray and such and such. So let's talk about some of the advances first. I mean, the technique or techniques like it have been around since the late 70s. So what's new? Well, first, from a pharmacologic standpoint, there are many more pharmacologic agents that are available now, especially for induction agents. I think that most emergency physicians use Atomidate, which may have not been widely available several years ago, as the principal induction agent. It's really a first-line agent because it is rapidly acting, it is easy to dose, it's fairly reliable, and there's very few side effects. And especially in a patient who has cardiovascular compromise, it tends to be very stable in that respect. In addition, there is now a wider range of neuromuscular blockers that are available. Succinylcholine is probably still the widest used neuromuscular blocker, but now there are non-depolarizing neuromuscular blockers that are used fairly frequently, such as rocuronium. And then from a technical and procedure standpoint, there have really been great strides made in terms of difficult airway equipment. For decades, 
people have used only a standard laryngoscope, either a Macintosh or Miller laryngoscope. And if they got into trouble, then they would have to resort to either an extraglottic device like an LMA, or in extreme cases, have to resort to a surgical airway. But in the past few years, in fact, the past several years, there have been huge advances in video laryngoscopy, optical stylets, and a series of other devices that have really made it easier to manage especially difficult airways. Now, with something like a video laryngoscopy, is that used commonly in your ER by ER-trained physicians, or is that something for ENT? No, it's, uh, the video laryngoscopes have been partly designed by emergency physicians, but no, we use them pretty routinely for the vast majority of our intubations. They're really most beneficial for intubations that turn out to be difficult, and difficult from the standpoint that when you perform laryngoscopy, if you're unable to see the vocal cords, a video-assisted device really improves your laryngeal view dramatically. And if you're able to see vocal cords, then you're usually able to put the endotracheal tube in. So that's been the real limitation to direct laryngoscopy, and I think that hurdle has, for the most part, been overcome by these new devices. You mentioned one of the first steps besides planning is the pre-oxygenation. What's a few of the caveats about pre-oxygenation that maybe people in an emergency situation don't remember or don't always practice? The first thing is that you need to have the highest starting sat that you can because your ability to effectively pre-oxygenate the patient gives you what's called a period of safe apnea. So that as soon as you render the patient apneic by giving neuromuscular blockers, that time from which you give the neuromuscular blockers to the point where their oxygen sat reaches 90% is called your safe apnea period. So you can extend that period dramatically by giving a good pre-oxygenation period, and that is done most effectively by giving the patient 100% oxygen and have the patient tidal breathe that 100% oxygen for three minutes. You mentioned pre-treatment. What's some of the controversy around the use of lidocaine, for example? Well, there are two drugs currently that we recommend for pre-treatment. One would be lidocaine, as you mentioned. The other would be fentanyl. Lidocaine is given predominantly in the setting of reactive airways disease. The literature out there is not strong in this respect, but what we do know is that in certain types of patients, patients with irritated airways, patients with pre-existing reactive airways disease, that when you manipulate the larynx and place it in a tracheal tube, they're likely to have a bronchospastic response to that. So lidocaine has been shown to attenuate those types of airway reflexes when stimulated, cough reflexes and things of that nature. So in the absence of a contraindication, it is reasonable to give lidocaine as a pretreatment in that condition. We tend to give it also for presumed elevated intracranial pressure, but again, it's not necessary in that respect. So is there a controversy? The only controversy being that giving pretreatment drugs does tend to complicate the pharmacologic regimen as you go through RSI, because in addition to giving induction agents and paralytics, you're now also adding a pretreatment agent. So that's now a third drug, sometimes a fourth drug you have to get out. And in addition, in order for those drugs to work effectively, they really need to be in the system for two to three minutes. And so that prolongs your time. It's built into the RSI sequence, but it does, A, make things a little more complicated, and B, will prolong RSI. So if there's a reason not to give it, we actually tell people to avoid it. But in the absence of a strong contraindication and you have the right clinical scenario, it's perfectly appropriate to give those drugs. So there's not a huge controversy at this point. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM 157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Shira Johnson, and joining me today to discuss rapid sequence intubation is Dr. Calvin Brown from Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. Now, I mentioned pitfalls. Tell us about some of the pitfalls of RSI. What happens when something goes wrong, and how can a practitioner prevent it? Well, 
the first thing is that if you're going to use RSI, you have to be fairly well-versed in the pharmacology of the drugs that you're using. And two, RSI is not appropriate for every patient. And patient selection is the key. So when we teach emergency physicians to use RSI, what we really stress is that they do a good difficult airway assessment because patients that are predicted to be very difficult to either intubate or to mask ventilate probably should not be paralyzed because if at that point you can't get the endotracheal tube in and then they desat and you're unable to bag them up, you end up very quickly in a can't intubate, can't oxygenate scenario. So RSI is perfect as long as the patients are screened for airway difficulty. So the one pitfall I would say is giving neuromuscular blockers in a patient in whom a difficult airway assessment was either not performed or was done in an incomplete fashion. And you've seen this? I have seen this. And the alternative is at that point? If you end up in a can-intubate, can-oxygenate scenario, then you're rapidly looking at a surgical airway. What other advances in airway management may our listeners not know about? You mentioned that the video laryngoscopy isn't common every place. What else? Right. I think that, honestly, most of the advances is on the technology front. There are more than video laryngoscopes out there. There's a whole host of both video-assisted devices of all shapes and also fiber optic in what we call optical stylets which also uh, aid in managing difficult airways. But most of it is on the technology front. In other words, something that can help the emergency physician see the vocal cords in the setting of a difficult airway. Are most ED physicians, you think, comfortable with RSI, or is it a special skill? Maybe not all institutions use it. It's the state of the art for ER physicians today, but you think people are using it everywhere? Well, no, I don't think people are using it everywhere. I think it's definitely becoming standard of care for emergency airway management. There are still a handful of people out there, I think, who are not familiar with the procedure, and it may be just that when they went through their training, it was not commonplace to give neuromuscular blockers outside of the OR. But in modern training programs, for anyone who's gone through residency in the past probably 10 to 20 years, they feel pretty comfortable using RSI. And I would say that the majority, in my experience, asking around the majority of emergency physicians, A, are using RSI, and B, feel pretty comfortable with it. But no, it's definitely not universal at this point. Can paramedics in the field use RSI in your EMS system with a medical-controlled advisor? Certain paramedic systems can. There is a lot of literature out there looking at pre-hospital rapid sequence intubation, and some of it is not good. It all depends on how skilled the paramedics are. So in paramedic companies where they don't see very many airways and they don't perform very many airways, that RSI in some studies has shown worsened outcomes for patients, especially head injury patients. But in certain paramedic companies, especially in urban centers, large cities, where they happen to take care of a lot of difficult airways in the field, they actually tend to be highly skilled. Our Boston EMS system actually has a fairly high intubation rate in the field, and it's pretty safe in those types of highly skilled paramedics. But across the board, it's actually not a good story. Suppose, let's go back to something you mentioned before, if you've done your residency in the last maybe 10 or 20 years, and it wasn't part of your training back then, you're practicing now. Can you get training on this? Is this something you advocate that uh, experienced physicians get this training for themselves? Where can they go for it? Yeah, I think that even if you've used RSI before, if you're not completely comfortable with it, and this means that you're using it either infrequently or uh, you're in a low-volume ED, I would say that every probably two or three years, you should take a formal CME training program in airway management. There are several of them available, and those airway courses should focus on both basic airway management as well as managing difficult airways and specifically the use of RSI. So 
if you're going to be in an emergency environment and you don't feel like you're fully trained, there are plenty of training programs out there to take, and you should probably stay updated every two to three years. So what is the future for RSI? What's on the horizon? Where is this going? I think what we hope is that anybody who is going to be a modern practicing emergency physician, that the method of intubation using either sedation alone or intubation with no meds is really abandoned and people really pick up and start using RSI in appropriate fashion widespread across the country. But as we mentioned earlier, that's really predicated upon the practitioner's knowledge base in terms of RSI pharmacology, indications, appropriate patient screening for airway difficulty, and of course that they stay up to date on their skills taking a difficult airway course every two to three years. Excellent. Thank you, Dr. Brown. Thank you. We'd like to thank our guest today, Dr. Calvin Brown III, for joining us to discuss advances and pitfalls in rapid sequence intubation in the ED. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM157, the channel for medical professionals. For a complete program guide and podcast, visit www.reachmd.com. For comments or questions, call us toll-free at 888-MD-XM-157. And thank you, as always, for listening.